0: You then you alright? Doing okay? So, how are you doing by comparison to the person you just spoke to? The person in your row. How are you doing? <laughs> she held a conversation? You're doing better, or worse? How about how are you doing by comparison to Jessica Ennis Hill? Oh, oh, silver. Is it better, do you think she's still got a silver medal and a gold medal? Oh, I know, but still. But how are you doing by comparison to her? What about um It's football started, I noticed. I don't know nothing, but I know there is a man called David Beckham who has played football. How are you doing by comparison to him? Guys, how are you doing? You still think probably you can play for England one day? Uh, That might be, we're in Cheltenham, it's a bit sporty and lowbrow. Should we go more highbrow? How are you doing by comparison to the Obamas? Michelle and Barack, how are you doing by comparison to them in life? Let's bring it closer to home. How are you doing by comparison to your neighbours? The people who live in your street, how are you doing car wise? Lawn? what I'm losing in my street, it's very nice. I let them all down. How are you doing by comparison to your peers at work? How are you doing by comparison to the people you work with? Good, bad? How are you doing by comparison to other mums? Mums, how are you doing by comparison? This all the mums like, terrible, I can't. How are you doing couples? How are you doing by comparison to other married people or other engaged people? This is the last one. I know this is a cruel way to intro and you're all feeling awful. How are you doing by comparison to your siblings, your brothers and your sisters? How are you getting on? That is, I know it's a cruel intro. It's a cruel way to start. Uh, a guy called Theodore Roosevelt, who is the 26th president of the United States. I looked that up for the Americans. I thought I better know which president he was. He said, he's got loads of great quotes, but he said, comparison is the thief of joy. And we know that. Although we live in a society where comparison is actively encouraged, we know that comparison is the thief of joy. And it's been like it for years with advertising and magazines, that these advertisements and magazines, they show us the images of the healthy, the wealthy, the beautiful, the clever and we look at them and we're encouraged to compare ourselves with them. And even though we know that they're airbrushed and their lives are managed by PR people, we still can't help ourselves thinking, oh, if only I could be a bit more like that person. If only I was a bit more beautiful, a bit clever, a bit more successful. And of course, this comparison culture has been magnified and blown up in recent years with the advent of social media, what is thrust upon us. This comparison, um, this desire to compare ourselves to other people. But of course, it's all very false, isn't it? Social media. The Daily Telegraph, in a report in 2013, said that a third of people said they would happily lie on social media to appear cool. In the same year, Time magazine said that 70% of people felt their friends were lying to them to appear cool. And that's just the downright lies. That's just the out and out lies. All of us, I would say, manage our online profile. That's the thing we have to do these days. It is said that most of us present about the the top 5% of our lives online. Just the best 5% of our life gets put on social media. And I'm not saying you shouldn't manage your online profile. We all have the friend's who don't manage their online profile and put way too much on social media. But it's difficult when you look and you see all these lives and all they're telling you is the best 5%. I don't know if you've seen, uh, recently there's this uh, marriage challenge have you seen this, where you're encouraged to put seven photos of your marriage over seven days, and seven happy, mari- happy pictures, and it's kind of a nice idea. It's supposed to show that marriage is a good thing, and marriage people can have fun too. Um, and it's sweet, and it's cute, and it's fine as long as you realise that they're the, five, they're the seven best photos of that couple. They're the seven best times that couple ever had. As long as you don't think their whole life is like that. If your marriage is struggling, those pictures can become the thief of joy. If you want to be married and you aren't married, those pictures can become the thief of joy. Even for happily married people, you look and you come off and you go, why do we not scuba dive? And your wife says, you can't swim. But if I could, I want to be those people who scuba dive. Just just me, maybe just me. Comparison is the thief of joy, and we live in a society where it's thrust upon us. And you maybe think, perhaps there was a simpler time. Perhaps there was a time before social media, before magazines, before advertising, when comparison wasn't such a big deal. But we're going to see this morning that it's always been there. It's always been that insidious part of human nature. We're going to look at one of the first stories ever told, one of the first stories ever written down. We're going to look at something that happened 4,000 years ago to two sisters, Rachel and Leah, and we're going to see how comparison steals their joy away. We're going to see how one of them is destroyed by comparison, but the other finds a doorway to hope and freedom. We are returning to Genesis, we're going to be looking, We're, we're going to start, our story starts with our friend Jacob, we're doing this uh, series in, um, in Genesis and uh, we're going to pick up with Jacob, if you've been here you'll know that Jacob um, is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham and God has made all of these promises to these people that they're... Their little family will become a family that fills the whole earth, that their family will be an important nation, and that one day from them will become the savior of the world. And Jacob wants a piece of that action, and so he steals his brother's birthright. And because he's stolen his brother's birthright, his brother wants to kill him. So he has to escape. And his mother is called Rebecca. Rebecca says, Right, run, run away, run to my uncle, uh, to my brother, Laban. Who lives, uh, who lives to the north, um, several days' travel. And, and so Jacob runs, and she says, when you're there, look for a wife. Find a wife from our tribe, a wife from our people. So we pick up, and he's run. He's, he had uh, the experience, if you were here last weekend, an experience of God at Bethel, uh, where God showed him a, 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 a vision of angels ascending and descending to heaven. And he spectacularly misses the point Bethel, what he should have said is yes please do it in my day, do it in my day but Jacob says I'll do it God I'll do it I'll win, I'll be the person who makes your promises come true in my life and the other problem you'll see with Jacob is Jacob always wants the best as how said he's a ladder climber. The best is only good enough for him. So when he arrives in this place uh, called Padam, Aram or Haran, he arrives there and he comes to a well and he meets a girl and she's the most beautiful girl he has ever seen. And it turns out he's, she's his cousin, which in these days that would be a bad thing, but for them that was great. It meant she was suitable to be married. She was one of his uh, family, part of his tribe. So he goes uh, with her to her father, who turns out to be Laban, his mother's brother. And Laban says, come and you can stay with us. And Jacob tells them all the stories of everything that's been happened with them since Rebekah left 30 or 40 years ago. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Um, in verse 14 of chapter 29, after Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, that's with Laban a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. I may call her Leah from time to time. It's just the Star Wars fan in me coming out. You can play the sort of um, preacher bingo game and just throw that in if you want. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work uh, for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So he's saying, That's that's what I want. That's my wages. You give me uh, your daughter after seven years. Laban said, "It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with, uh, stay with me." So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because he was in love, because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, "Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her." I'm going to start by asking you a question: Who loved Rachel and who loved Leah? First question, did Laban love his daughters? Maybe in Laban's way, but what, we'll see, what we see in this, and we we'll see from the rest of the story, Laban loves money. Above all things, Laban loves money, and to Laban, all things are a commodity. All people, his daughters in particular, are commodities to be traded. I don't know if you went and asked your father-in-law for his permission to marry your wife. I, my father-in-law is an accountancy lecturer. And uh, so when I went to see him to ask if I could marry Sarah, I had a five-year plan with me, genuinely. And my and my like, account, like, a, uh, like a profit and loss sheet for my future life. Thankfully, he's a really kind man, and he didn't want to see my presentation or anything. <laughs> he just said, yes, take her off my hands. Um, no, he... He said yes. He's a nice guy. He's a good guy. Uh, Laban comes up with the worst line ever of any father in law. It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. That's what he says about his daughter. Now we'll see that, that Laban is being the, the, the master trader here. And You'll see that in a minute. But he's kind of it's just like whatever. Yeah, marry her if you like. So you have to question whether Laban loved his daughters and, and Jacob didn't love Leah. We, we know that he didn't love her. Uh, and the text says she had weak eyes. Now, in, within that, it's a hard word to translate, but from the context of Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel uh, was uh, beautiful and uh, had a good body, it's a, it's a euphemism. She wasn't easy on the eye. That's what they're saying. She was ugly. That's how it was. So not only did Jacob not love her, but in seven years, no one wanted to marry her. Her sister was engaged for seven years, and no one, not one man, even showed her a little bit of interest. And that'd be pretty rubbish today. That'd be pretty rubbish if your sister was engaged to some lovely guy and no one even asked you on a date. That'd be pretty hard these days. But back then, with the culture and the society in which they lived, this was awful. It was terrible for her. I'm going to give you two sort of cultural things that we don't passively get. Firstly, it was pretty poor show that Jacob asked the younger sister to marry him. The way it works then is what should have happened is before you could find a suitor for the younger sister, the father should have uh, found a suitor for the older. Leah should have either been married or engaged before Jacob even asked. But we know what Jacob's like. He's a grasper. He doesn't care what anyone thinks or who he hurts in his pursuit of what he sees as perfection. And the dad should have said, no, my older sister, my older daughter. But the thing is, Laban has seen the dollar signs. He's seen it. You see, in lots of cultures, there's a dowry paid when people get married, and um, mostly in sort of tribal societies, And the reason for a dowry is firstly to show that you've got enough money to look after that man's daughter, and secondly to cement the relationship between your two families or your two tribes. And we don't have it, and we don't get it. But the people reading this story would have gone, would have gasped when he offered seven years' wages. It's an insane amount of money. It's a crazy price. But in Jacob's greed and lust, he throws all caution to the wind and says, seven years, I'll give you seven years' salary. About a year's salary was a sensible dowry for that time, was a sort of a given for age. He just goes, I'll give you seven years' salary. Which is why Laban goes, stuff cultural convection. stuff loving my daughters, it's seven years' wages. Yes, please, Jacob, have her if you like. You might as well have her. Might as well give her to you as to my other man. And secondly, the second cultural thing that made this awful for uh, Leah is, um, is the way in which women were valued and valued themselves 4,000 years ago. Now, it's a cultural, these are cultural conventions that we, thank goodness, are passed and have done away with. And the Bible in no way condones what I'm just about to say. Uh, And in fact, um, so I'll tell you what the two uh, values are. The first one, the first two ways that these women would find value in life is to get married for a huge dowry, and secondly, to have kids, preferably boys. The Bible doesn't say that's a good thing. In fact, if you read the Bible, the Genesis, you'll see that all of these, um, and we're going to see that there's um, some polygamy going to happen later on in the story, so... That's one to look out for. And um, all these things happen, but the Bible is really against them. It doesn't specifically say they're bad, but terrible things happen. And we're going to see in this story. Terrible things happen from these cultural things. In fact, uh, some people have read Genesis and say, well, look, it, it, um, it promotes uh, patriarchy and polygamy and sexism. C.S. Lewis says, if you read Genesis and that's what you think, then you haven't learned to read He's saying the Bible's so clear, Genesis is so clear that these are not good things. But for these women, for the way they saw themselves, for the way they saw their lives, they, this was their outlook. And the Bible is an honest reporter of what is happening. So the two things that they wanted more than anything, to, to give them value, to benefit their society, to benefit their tribes, to feel good about themselves, was marriage with a huge dowry and kids, preferably boys. So poor Leah has failed while her little sister is the absolute winner. She's got this massive dowry, seven years, and not one man has shown any interest. So I asked you, who loved Leah and who loved Rachel? And you say, well, we know who loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. It says so in this passage. It says it over and over again. I'm not sure whether he loved Rachel or he loved the idea of possessing the most beautiful woman. I'm not sure if he loved or he just wanted to climb the ladder. I'm not sure he was just in love with the idea of having a beautiful wife and a beautiful life. I'm not sure if he was just in love with the idea of spawning this nation on behalf of God. We're going to see some things that go through the story that suggest he wasn't the best husband, the most loving man. But even within this story, we see that he is lusting after her. And he says, the most The most offensive thing to a potential father-in-law that he could possibly have said. If you are ever going to get married, do not say this to your father-in-law, okay? Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. In other words, he says, I've paid for your daughter. Now can I have her so we can have sex? That's what he says to his father-in-law. Laban should have smacked him one. I just totally think if, 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 uh, if you ever say this to your father-in-law and he beats you to within an inch of his life, everyone will say, he did the right thing. <laughs> this is not a great thing, but Laban's not bothered because Laban has already exploited Jacob's greed and lust once and now Jacob, now Laban can double his money. So we're going to move on. Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, not Rachel, and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years' work. Jacob did so. He finished his week with Leah, and then Laban gave his daughter uh, Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhar to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. That's a horrible story. Right? That's grim. No one comes out of that well. I mean, Laban's rich and happy because he's an absolute scumbag. But everyone else is uh, pretty awful. And you might think, is it unrealistic? Is this an unrealistic story? Could someone possibly sleep with someone else... Someone and not know who they were sleeping with, right? Firstly, let's this go through. Firstly, there's a big feast. And what? A big feast is a big party. There's a lot of wine, there's a lot of drink. Jacob is pretty drunk by the end of the night. By the time he actually sees his wife, he's pretty drunk. Secondly, the men would have all drunk separately to the women anyway. So it's not like there'd have been a ceremony or anything. It just seems like they... Um, They just had sex and that was it. You're married. Thirdly, um, yeah, there's no ceremony. And and so, uh, yeah, I've done that one. Fourthly, they meet in a tent in the desert at night before gas, candles, electric lights. It's pitch black and he's very drunk. And I still ask that question. Did he love Rachel? Or did he just love the idea of possessing Rachel? But whatever... It's hard to imagine how those two women felt. Rachel thought she had won the big prize. Rachel thought she was an absolute winner. For seven years, she thought, I'm going to marry this handsome, strong, clever guy. She thought her sister would get nothing. And now, at the final minute, she must have been bundled off somewhere. She must have been hidden away somewhere, knowing... That her sister is sleeping with her husband. That her sister is stealing her man. That her sister is stealing her future. Stealing her happiness. Perhaps you're a bit like Rachel today. Perhaps your dreams have been ripped away from you. Perhaps people have mistreated you. I want to say there's hope for you today. I wonder what possessed Leah to go along with the plan. I wonder if it was the fear that she would never get married or the fear that she'd always be a burden on her family. I wonder if she thought that once she'd had sex with him, he'd love her. This story is full of cultural things that we find weird and gross and confusing. But what hasn't changed in 4,000 years are the underlying thoughts and fears of men and women. I wonder how many women have slept with a man and hoped that afterwards he'd love them. I how many women have got married just because they don't want to be a burden to their family, just because they want to know love from someone. Perhaps you're like Leah today. Perhaps your family didn't really love you. Perhaps, you got, perhaps you've done stuff that you're not proud of in the search of love. Perhaps your marriage isn't all that you hoped it would be. But I want to say there's hope for you today. So Laban's dastardly plan is a success. He manages to marry off both his daughters for the exorbitant fee of 14 years' salary. And there's an irony in the passage, the story of Jacob, the deceiver, being deceived. And it's, it's there, intentional. God should have highlighted to him his own foolishness, but we'll see he still doesn't learn. He still doesn't get it. All this pain and suffering he's causing everyone around it, he doesn't see. But the problem for our two sisters, our two heroines, is it's only got worse. It's intensified. Now they're both married to the same man. They now hate one another and cannot escape the pull of destruction, of comparison. Sadly, Rachel will lose all joy, while Leah will find freedom. So we're going to start with Rachel, and we're going to move to Leah. So in verse 31, it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childish. Remember, these two women had two goals. One was to get married for a huge dowry, and they both had done that. And the other was to have babies, preferably boys. So Rachel had spent all that time thinking she was the winner. And suddenly it had all been ripped away from her. Not only had her sister got the same husband... Now she wasn't having babies while her sister was producing baby boy after baby boy. Rachel felt like she'd gone from being winner to being loser. It must have been awful for her when women laughed at her because her man that she bragged about all those seven years was now sleeping with her sister. What was worse was the shame of not being able to have babies. And Thankfully, that cultural stigma is pretty much gone of not being able to have babies. But the pain, I know, is still there for people who want to have children and and can't. But I want to say there is freedom. There is hope for you. The worst thing for Leah is that her sister just keeps having baby boy after baby boy. She's had four baby boys. Rachel is beside herself. She does not know what to do. She cannot cope at all. And she comes up with the idea, surrogacy. Now, it seems like surrogacy was a fairly kind of, um, it it seems to happen a fair bit in the Bible. Uh, Jacob's uncle has an uncle born by surrogacy. Um, And before any other types of fertility treatment for the sort of upper middle classes, this was their answer. And the Bible doesn't really say one way or another about this. It doesn't give a moral thing. It just says this is what happened. So this passage, and this is not uh, about um, fertility treatments or anything like that. It's just, this is what happened with them. So when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God? Who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhar, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhar as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of that, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhar conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. What we see in in this Passages is the state of Rachel's heart, of, of how Rachel feels. And I would say that people reading this three and a half thousand years ago would have seen that Rachel is the same grasper as her husband, the same ladder climber, that desperate need to win. She says, give me children or I die. And I guess for people who have been, uh, who wanted to have kids and haven't had kids, that is a totally legitimate emotion and way to feel. I get that, but for Rachel, it isn't just those maternal urges that's not being met. For Rachel, there's something more important, beating her sister, being the winner. And so she calls her first son, Dan, and we, don't, we call our kids names. <laughs> we give them names, and sometimes they have meanings, and some of you would have chosen names based on what they mean. Some of you just think they're a pretty name. Um, but for these guys living then, they chose names and it was really significant. It was important about, it t- talked about what was happening when they were born. It told the story of their birth, but also had a prophetic edge. It said, this is what I think this child is going to be. And so, uh, Rachel gives her first child the name Dan, which means vindication. God has vindicated me. See, what we see with Rachel is there's no joy uh, a good thing happening. She's not just happy, and that's the problem with comparison. You're not just happy because something good happened. You can only be happy because you beat someone else. You're only happy because you're vindicated. and That's a really hollow kind of joy. And then her second surrogate child, she calls naftali, which means my struggle. She says, I have struggled with my sister, and I have won. It's a pretty messed up thing to call your kid And it's also just craziness. She says, I have won. And you just think, well, in what sense? If this is actually a competition, your sister has four sons, you have two. How have you won? This is the problem with comparison. It just blinds us to reality. We can't see the good things in our lives. All we can see is the competition. All we can see is the struggle to beat other people. And it gets worse for poor Rachel. Leah has two more kids as surrogates. She decides if it's good enough for for Rachel, it's good enough for me. Go on, Jacob, sleep with my wife. So I'm questioning how much Jacob really loved Rachel. He now has four wives by this stage. Because his wives went, have sex with her, have sex with who you like. Anyway. Um, So she has two more by the surrogate. And then she starts having more children of her own. So she has another two boys and a little girl. So she now has... Seven sons and a daughter. Rachel cannot. Did I get the numbers right? Six sons, and one. Six sons, and one. Four. Two. No, eight. She had four before, then another two, then another two. <laughs> the surrogates, yeah. Eight! <laughs> and a daughter. Or six of her own and two surrogates. And a daughter. For Rachel, this is just awful. And we read in in verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Up to this point, Rachel had felt disgraced, an absolute disgrace. And it's crazy. Because she's living the life of comparison. All she can see is what her sister has and what she does not have. Instead of thinking, I'm married to a, a guy, he's rich, he's got this amazing promise uh, that we're going to be, uh, my family will become the greatest nation on earth, from us the saviour of the world will come. I've got four sons, two surrogates, two of my own, or one of my own, I'm getting ahead of myself. She should have been happy. She should have thought, that's all right. But she feels a disgrace. And at the birth of, her, of Joseph, her, her son, she should have felt She should have felt some elation, some excitement. But she calls him Joseph. May he add, when uh, J.D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men who ever lived, was asked how much money is enough, he replied, a little bit more. And that's the problem for her. It's not good enough. Joseph is not good enough. Because people who compete, people who compare, nothing is ever good enough. How many sons is enough? Just one more. Add to me. And Joseph, Joseph, you know, do you know who Joseph is? Yeah, he's the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat guy. Yeah, he's going to become the second most powerful man on earth. All of the nations will come to him to be fed. He will become the savior of the world at that time. And Andrew Lloyd Webber will write a musical about him. <laughs> Could a mother be happier? <laughs> but she, she's not happy. She says that to me, another. And so, sadly, she dies in childbirth. We read it, we fl- if you flick through to chapter 35 from verse 16, they've come back to the land, they've travelled around a bit, and it says, When they, were, uh, when they moved uh, on from Bethel, while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named him ben but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. That's to this day, three and a half thousand years ago, not to this day, this day. That pillar is not there, you cannot find that. Um... And it seems like Rachel died with no joy left at all. The midwife says to her, don't despair, for you have another son. And if it was a Hollywood film, it would be that sort of poignant, weepy moment where she gives her last breath to her son and new life comes into the world and the final tribe of the nation of Israel is born. But for her, there is nothing left but pain. And she calls her son, Benoni, the son of my trouble. Even in her, with her dying breath, she says, the day of my trouble. Nothing is good enough. She dies with no joy. And even Jacob cannot honour his wife's fine, final breath. He I can't call my son the son of my trouble. He saw the pain in his wife's heart and he didn't want to pass that on to Benjamin. So he calls him the son of my right arm. Comparison robbed Rachel of her joy. So let's see, how did Leah find freedom? At First, it's a rocky start for Leah as well. We'll flick back to uh, verse 31. You see, Leah is desperate for love. She wants the love her father never gave her. She wants to get the love her sister has. She wants to win and compete there. Since so it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Reuben means he has seen my misery, and Simeon means he has heard. She said, God has seen my pain. He has heard my cry. Now he's going to give me what I want. He's going to give me Jacob's love. And and there's people out there who uh, will tell you that if you pursue God, he will give you what you want. And it's a really attractive offer for people in pain. There are people who lead big churches and have TV ministries who will tell you that if you have enough faith, you can be healthy and wealthy. There's two problems with that approach. The first is that wealth and health are not the doorway to joy. They're not. You know why? Because the people who pursue those things always want a little bit more. There's never good enough. They never reach that. And secondly, the second reason these people should not say that is because it isn't true. The Bible does not say that. Almost everyone in the Bible lives almost all of their life in pain and suffering in their pursuit of God. That's the truth of it. If someone has told you that if you have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy in this life, they are liars. It isn't true. The Bible does not teach that. What the Bible teaches, that we can be like Leah. We can find freedom from comparison. We can find freedom for the constant search for health and beauty. We can find freedom from money and Laban's endless greed. And so the sad thing is Leah lowers her sights with her third son. She's not hoping anymore that Jacob will love her. She's hoping that he'll be attached to her. They'll kind of like her. That's pretty sad, isn't it? It's pretty tragic that Laban's greed and Jacob's lusts destroy these two women, make them feel so awful. And by the fourth son, she's given up all hope. The Jacob, the child worth, will bring the love she craves. But actually, it's the turning point for her. That's the point at which she finds freedom. In verse 38, it says this. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This time. I will praise the Lord. This time, I will praise the Lord. It's got to be one of the greatest statements in the Bible. If you want a memory verse, remember this one. This time, I will praise the Lord. It's a proclamation of faith. Nothing has changed for her. Her sister still hates her. Her sister still wants to win. Her father still does not love her. Her husband doesn't even like her. What's more, her father, her husband doesn't earn any money. He's a slave to her father, and by extension, so is she. Also, nothing has changed when it comes to her success. She still got married for a huge dowry, she still had four baby boys, and she found that none of those things actually gave her the happiness she thought they would. But she makes a decision. She says, There is something bigger than me, someone bigger than my circumstances, someone I can focus on, someone in the midst of my mess I can look to, someone who always hears, someone who always sees, someone who always loves, someone she can enjoy a relationship with, someone she can praise. This time, I will praise the Lord. So why is praise the answer? Why does worship transform our soul? I could do a whole, several sermons on this, right? But I'm just going to give you two quotes from two great men of God. The first one's a guy called William Temple. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the Second World War, um, and mine and Andy's school was named after him. Just saying. Uh, And he said this about worship. He said, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination of his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose. And the second quote is from a hero of mine. Uh, I might just try and quote him in everything I ever preach. I could just preach his sermons. it would be better. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon, is absolute hero of the faith, an amazing preacher, and he said this: "Does not all nature around me praise God? If I were silent, I should be an exception to the universe. Does not the thunder praise him as it rolls like drums in the march of God's armies? Do not the mountains praise Him when the woods upon their summits wave in adoration? Does not the lightning write his name in letters of fire? Has not the whole earth a voice? And shall I, can I, silent be? What these two men are saying is that when we praise God, we become who we are. We join with all of creation in singing his song. We discover a story bigger than our circumstances. The hole in your life, the great void, the great hunger that causes you to want to consume, to want to compete, to want to compare, can only be filled with the praise of God. Because it's who you are. You might feel like Rachel this morning. You might feel like all your dreams have been ripped away. You may feel like there's always that person who is always better than me. Maybe it's your sister. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe, maybe it's... Um, other impossible idols you think oh, i can never find joy i'm always chasing that maybe you're like Leah. maybe you've just been mistreated in this life maybe you weren't dealt a great hand to start with and then things got progressively worse maybe men have used you or mistreated you maybe you thought that sex would be the answer wherever you are today the answer is in that simple statement this time I will praise the Lord to make that decision. We're going to give you a chance to respond, but before I uh, move on, I want to pick up one final point about this fourth child, the birth of Judah. I don't think it can be a coincidence that Judah turns out to be the heir of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These great promises, they come down to this guy, Judah, When uh, at the end of his life, uh, right through it in chapter 50 of Genesis, Jacob is blessing his sons. He says this to Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Uh, That's sort of the rule, the sort of kingship of uh, this people. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Of course, we know who... The scepter belongs to the true inheritor of all of these promises, the one to whom all nations will bow is Jesus. One day, Leah's great son, Judah's great son, will be Jesus. And at the birth of his great grandfather, something changes in Leah. Praise is drawn from her that was never there before. If the shadow of his coming can transform someone's life like that, think what it can do for you. You might be sitting there and thinking, I'm so pleased that Leah found that freedom, but you don't know my pain. You don't know where I'm coming from. You don't know how tough my life is. I can't make that decision to praise the Lord today. And you might be right, but that's where Jesus comes in. That's where the cross comes in. As he is birthed into your life, something changes. The cross, the resurrection, his life changes mourning into dancing. It changes sadness to joy. It changes torment to peace. He sets free men's souls so that we can say this time, I will praise the Lord. If the band want to come up. We're going to have communion now. Um, we're going to give you an, if you want to have an opportunity to respond to some of the stuff that I've raised, we're going to give you that. But firstly, we're going to, hopefully, some of you, <laughs> will make that decision to say this time I will praise the Lord. And we're going to do that uh, by sharing communion and praising Jesus. Before Jesus died, before he went to the cross, he uh, was with his friends and he took some bread. I imagine it wasn't in a wrapper. Um, he took some bread And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. See, on the cross, his body is broken. That's your pain. That's your suffering. That's your shame. Broken on the cross for you. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Poured out to wash away that pain, that suffering, that sin. And in his resurrection, we see new life, new joy. And for people like us, broken people, we can say this time, I will praise the Lord. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk